like to open your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's been almost a month since we have been in this, in this book. This is part of our ongoing series, and we're going to finish it out, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians, a roadmap for raw Christians. Remember, it's titled that because it's the Apostle Paul's first letter that we have in the canon to this church that was coming out of a culture and a life and a past that was flooded with pagan idolatry and sexual immorality, and they were brand new Christians, and they were wrong. They had a lot to learn. So Paul gives them what amounts to a roadmap from where they are to mature believers and followers of Christ. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. That's on page 956, 1 Corinthians 9, 1-14. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are your people gathered for worship, and we are coming to your word. We ask that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit so that we can see the true meaning of this passage. We want to learn, we want to understand We want to be able to leave this place this morning saying, I I understand what the Apostle Paul was writing to these raw believers, and I understand how it is written for us today as followers of Jesus. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a sophomore in high school named Damon, and he was, for the past few years, collecting hats. That was just something that he started to do. It was a hobby. He, he started off with a couple of, of hats from his favorite teams, his favorite sport teams, uh, some professional football teams, and it just kind of grew from there. He, he, he expanded out to include collegiate teams, and then he included other sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, and, and, and pretty soon that expanded, and, and he had this collection of hats. And it wasn't just Damon, it was his friends. It started in middle school, and it just kind of caught on. So, so he and a group of friends were all into collecting hats. And then they, they connected with some people with, from some other schools, and, and they collected hats. So there was this subculture of hat collecting. And some of their collections were on shelves. Some of them had so many that they had to display them on walls. So they would take little finishing nails and, and tack it into the wall, and they would hang their hat on it. Some of them had a wall of hats. Some of them had multiple walls of hats. And each hat had a different value. Some hats were more valuable than other hats. So some hats were more prized than other hats. And part of that value was depending on the condition of the hat. And of course, the highest value hats are the hats that were never worn. These were the hats that were in mint condition. The the brims had never been formed to anyone's head. They'd never been put on. The, The tags and the stickers from the original purchase were still attached. And Damon had a favorite hat. And part of this this subculture, part of what they did was that they traded. So on a regular basis, they would get together or or online or or texting. They would would try to arrange deals. I'll I'll trade this hat for for that hat. And if they were of lesser value, sometimes one person would say, well, I'll give you these two hats for, for this one hat. And it was during one of these negotiations that someone said, 
uh, Damon, I'll, I'll give you two hats for, for that one. And they pointed to his favorite hat. He said, no. They said, okay, three hats. No. Four hats. He said, stop. I, I know what you're doing. It, it doesn't matter if you gave me five hats or your whole collection of hats and you threw a bunch of cash in on top of it. He said, that one is off limits. I'm not trading it. You can't have it. And so every once in a while, someone would, would attempt a, a, a trade and he would tell them the same thing. Not that one. It's off limits. The Apostle Paul did not have a favorite hat. There was nothing on the wall of the Apostle Paul's life that he was unwilling to let go of. There was nothing that he had that he was unwilling to sacrifice or surrender for the sake of the gospel and for his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He didn't have a favorite hat. There was nothing off limits. He tells the church in our passage this morning that he's willing to endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Anything. Nothing was off limits. He was willing to bear all things. Can we say the same thing? Or do we have a favorite hat? This is one of those convicting passages that, that helps put our life as we follow Jesus Christ in proper perspective. So we're going to unpack Paul's teaching on this subject. It's, it's somewhat layered, this, this teaching on the correct use of freedom and Christian freedom and how to use it for the sake of the gospel. But we're also going to end with an application challenge. So let's take a look at this. This is 14 verses of chapter 9. Beginning at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 
as we mentioned a moment ago, we've not been in 1 Corinthians since August 14, so we need a, a quick review. If you recall, chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together. This is one unit. Paul is addressing one topic in 8, 9, and 10, and that topic is eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And, and specifically, in, in the first part, it was about in the context of these pagan cultic meals that were prevalent in Corinth in the first century. And he told them, don't eat in those pagan cultic meals because you're acting as a headwind hindrance. Remember this? You're, you're acting as a hindrance to others because if there's other raw believers in Corinth and they see you giving the green light to go ahead and, and eating in these pagan cultic meals and so they start attending and that used to be something that was was part of the fabric of their life. How long is it going to be before they're drawn right back into pagan idolatry? So that was one reason why Paul said, don't do it. That's not what your freedom in Christ is for. And so then when we get to our chapter, chapter 9, this is where Paul is telling them, yes, in fact, I am an apostle. I, I do have the right to teach you and authoritatively correct you. And then he takes an opportunity to instruct them using his own circumstances, his own life, to show them this is what you use your freedom in Christ for. It's not for your own self-serving reasons. It's for serving Christ and for serving others. And so that's what ours, our chapter here is, is to begin uh, describing here. And it's going to continue, Lord willing, next week. And then finally in chapter 10, he goes on to return to those cultic meals. And we'll deal with that uh, when we get to chapter 10. So we start in verse 1, and we, we're going to see a couple things. So this is a general defense of his apostleship. Paul's going to start with a general defense. Verses 1 and 2 are a, a general defense, and so he's going to be dealing with issues of his credentials. And then when we get to verses 3 through 14, that's a specific defense addressing those that would challenge his authority as an apostle on the basis and on the fact that he does not receive support in Corinth. And so this is kind of what I mean when it's a layered teaching. There's a lot going on here. He, he addresses an issue, but then he splits it, and then one of those gets split again. So we're going to do our best to follow along. That's why it seemed so kind of haphazard when we went through it. What's all this talk about a believing wife and Peter and the brothers? And We'll, we'll get to that. We want to understand what he's saying. So keep that in mind. A general defense, verses 1 and 2, and then a specific defense, verses 3 through 14. But they both address his authority and his status as an apostle. So first, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that there are four rhetorical questions designed to eliminate any doubt about his authority as an apostle. Am I not free? The answer is yes, of course. But this may have been challenged because of his continuing message of being free in Christ. We we don't have to look any further than Galatians 5.1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul's saying, look, don't, don't fall under this teaching that you have to do this and do that, and you need to make sure you do this in order to be in Christ. He says, you're free in Christ. And he preached that consistently. And so some may have been challenging Paul and saying, well, you preach freedom in Christ. But in practice, it looks like you're being really careful on, on what you eat and what you don't eat. And, and because the very last verse of chapter 8, it says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. 
So someone might have pointed to that and saw some inconsistency and said, well, you, you're, you're preaching freedom, but what, you're, you're observing certain dietary laws? Paul says, no, I'm free. They don't understand what he reprimanded them in chapter 8 for, and that was using their freedom for their own selfish purposes. They don't understand that freedom in Christ is to be used in service to Christ and his church, and that's how Paul's using it. So yes, he is free. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Remember, he established that up front. That was the very first message we saw in 1 Corinthians, being up front. And if you remember, we said it was important that Paul establish his credentials as an apostle because he is going to be giving them some hard teaching. He's going to be bringing some correction, and they need to understand that he is, in fact, operating as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has the authority to do that. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we defined apostle, a person who is selected and directed, commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ to complete the foundational work of the church with full representational authority from Jesus and the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. So Paul's reminding them, he's saying, look, I'm the apostle, not you. He's pulling rank. Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? Yes. Paul is reminding them, Jesus selected me, he appeared to me, not you. Pulling rank. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? This is a reminder. You're my workmanship, I'm not your workmanship. You, the, the church of Corinth exists as a result of Paul's apostolic ministry. It's not the reverse. So he's, he's hitting this pretty hard. He, he's pulling rank in a, in a very direct manner. And then verse 2, if, I am, uh, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. They of all people have to acknowledge Paul's apostolic status, um, their living proof of his ministry, as he stated in 1 Corinthians 4.15, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's how close of a spiritual relationship they have. He says, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So like a, like a signet ring being pressed into hot wax, Paul is saying, your existence as a church is, is a valid attestation, legally binding, that I am a true apostle. Or look at it the other way. Paul could say, look, if I'm not a true apostle, you're not a true church. Because you, you're, you exist on everything that I, that I brought to you and I taught to you and, and, I, and I directed you on. So, which is it? Others may question his authority, but they, the church, should not. That was his general defense of, of his apostleship. Now, why would he be doing any of this? Because it's being challenged. Because there are some that are challenging his authority as an apostle. So that's why he's responding. And then in verses uh, 3 through 14, this is now the specific defense of his apostleship based on his support choice. So he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me, those who are questioning his status. It, it, it's those who are questioning his status, and the reason they're questioning it is because he refused to accept payment from the church in Corinth. He didn't do that at every place he ministered. He did accept support from some churches. 
but from other churches, he chose not to. It was a ministry choice. It was a, it was a context-specific choice. And he had his reasons for not accepting support. But that was uh, a weak point as far as uh, opening himself up to criticism because professional speakers were paid. People who were good at their job were paid. Genuine apostles were paid. They were supported. But Paul's not taking any support. So he's opening himself up to this charge of not being a legitimate apostle. Um, it's almost like his detractors are saying, well, what's the matter? Aren't you good enough to be paid? Um, are you worth it or not worth it? And so he's going to defend against that. He's going to now split this defense, this specific defense, into making the case that he does deserve to be paid. And then the second part is saying he's intentionally choosing not to be paid. So let's look at the first part. This is, this is all now the section three through, um, uh, it looks like 11, 12, three through 12 is going to be establishing his right to be paid. So similar to his general defense, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So we're going to unpack these, but all three of them have to deal with his right to, self, uh, his right to be supported by the church. Uh, number one, this question about asking if... Uh, he has the right to eat and drink. It's referring not to his freedom to eat whatever he wants, whether it's been sacrificed to idols or not. This is referring to general provisional support, eat and drink. In other words, daily needs. Do we not have the right for the church to supply our daily needs? Food, drink, clothing, shelter. In other words, general support. The answer, of course, is yes. Number two, the question about taking a believing wife. This also has to do with support. It was understood that when a gospel worker was engaged in gospel ministry, the church were, was to support not only him, but his wife. There were two mouths to feed, not just one. So they need to, needed to support and provide enough provision so that both the, the worker and his wife were supported. And this also tells us that Peter was married and took a wife with him, at least on some of his itinerant ministry. It also tells us that Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus, the brothers of the Lord. Like, and this isn't just one data point. Let's look at Matthew twelve forty six. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And then Matthew 13 is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? So this is a great verse to take our Roman Catholic friends because in one verse, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, we have one verse that refutes two high-profile Roman Catholic teachings, the perpetual virginity of Mary and the celibacy of the priesthood. Peter was married. And Mary had other children. And then finally, verse 3, or is it just us that are not allowed to be compensated for our work? The, the double negative, the right or no right to refrain makes it kind of confusing. But what he's saying is, uh, 
kind of sarcastically he's saying, oh, is it just us? Are, are we the only ones that, that aren't allowed to get paid for our work? And by saying that, he means, of course, all gospel workers are allowed and should be paid for their work. And then in verse 7, three examples from worldly labor demonstrate Paul's point. Um, soldiers don't serve for free. Vineyard workers aren't denied eating the fruit that they plant and tend. Shepherds are not barred from drinking the milk of the animals they care for. So everybody would have agreed with that. They would have seen that and said, yeah, we agree with that. Verses 8 and 9, Paul appeals to Scripture. God himself has established this right principle of gospel workers being paid, receiving payment. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And then the second half of verse 9 is the question, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, yes. That's the immediate plain meaning of the text from Deuteronomy 25. But the principle extends beyond the oxen. How do we know that? Well, because it's in the New Testament, for one. And this is what Paul picks up on, is this principle. Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? Yes, of course. This is an argument from lesser to greater. If God is concerned about an ox as it labors, and God's concerned that he receives nourishment from his work, how much more so is God concerned about Paul and the other apostles and, and gospel workers, that they be nourished from their work. And then in verse 11, he, after using an agricultural illustration of the, the plowman and the thresher, he asks, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things? And of course the answer is no. It's not too much to ask for something that is due Paul and is also commanded by the Lord. And then finally, verse 12 is personal. If all the gospel workers have this right, how much more so does Paul? He's their spiritual father. This is a personal uh, argument. He's the founder of the Corinthian church. So that first section of his specific defense is establishing the right of apostles and all gospel workers to receive payment for their work. And he made a pretty airtight case for that. I mean, he used worldly uh, illustrations, he, he appealed to the scripture, he, he, he talked about all these different things, he makes an airtight case, and then he's going to turn around, and in the second half of verse 12, he's going to say, but I'm not going to make use of that right. I have not made use of that right. It's something guaranteed by Jesus, but Paul chooses not to make use of it. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 12, it says he does not want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So the question very quickly becomes, how is receiving pay, pay that is due him, according to Jesus Christ and according to Scripture, how is that going to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel? Why does Paul feel the need that he has to not receive payment in order to remove an obstacle to the gospel? And the answer is this. If Paul received support from the Corinthian church at that time, it would have created the impression that the gospel that Paul was proclaiming was on the same level as the gospel that every other false teacher 
was proclaiming. Paul was not the only one vying for the Corinthians' attention. Paul was not the only one trying to, to lead this church. There were others that were trying to lead it in a wrong direction. There were others that were trying to re lead it away from Christ. He tells us, 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So in Corinth at this time, there were, there were other false apostles, there were other false teachers, they were promoting a different Jesus and a different gospel. But Paul, uh, according to his own self-report, was not that eloquent of a speaker. He, he wasn't as, as polished as some of these professional orators. And, and, and he even makes a comment, I think, earlier, and, and the, the context tells us that he may have not have been camera-friendly. He may not have had a, a commanding, a handsome presence. So he really wasn't that much to look at, and he, and he really, really wasn't that great of a speaker. So all things being equal, if they had to pick from, from Paul's Jesus and Paul's Gospel, sitting on the shelf with all these other Jesuses and Gospels being proclaimed, and you've got a really polished, persuasive, powerful speaker over here that really connects with the audience, they, they might have been more likely to choose that one. So Paul's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I don't have to do this in all the ministry contexts. I don't have to do this in all the churches I plan. But here it's necessary. I'm not going to get paid. And that's going to make me stand out. I'm going to be the only one in this array of false teachers that isn't being paid for what I do. And that's going to get people's attention. Here's 2 Corinthians 11, 4-6. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, and then he states, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so unknowledged. So there's where we see that those elements of, of other speakers and, and his own uh, self-assessed inadequacy as a, as a speaker and we start to understand this context. Paul didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel by receiving payment because he would have just blended in. And to reject Paul is to reject Paul's Jesus. To reject Paul is to reject Paul's gospel. And for good or for worse, the, the, the gospel, the true gospel, and the true Jesus was inextricably connected to the man Paul, the one proclaiming it, that apostle. And so for Paul, nothing was off limits, even receiving pay, basic provisions in the church of Corinth. I want to read uh, just a little bit more background. This is 2 Corinthians. Now remember, there wasn't a, lot, a long time between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Scholars estimate around a year. So the situation really hadn't changed. We, we can't say, well, that was 1 Corinthians. This is a lot later in 2 Corinthians. No, they were, they were pretty close together. So I think this provides an accurate picture. Sometimes I think the church is surprised at how often talks about his support choices and how important they were to his, to his missionary strategy. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 11, 7-15. Listen carefully. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? 
I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to support or in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, it is not surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Do you see what he's saying? In Corinth, Paul selects purposefully not to receive payment, even though he has the full right to, in order to distinguish himself from these other false apostles. But in doing so, he opens himself up to the charge of not being a true apostle. It's kind of a paradox. Nothing was off limits. And then verses 13 and 14 he once again demonstrates that he most certainly has the right to receive payment. Those who serve in the temple, both Jewish and pagan, get their food or are supported by their temple service. Likewise, Jesus commanded that workers should be paid for their work. Uh, gospel workers in general, the general principle, should be free from temporal concerns so they can fully devote themselves to proclaiming the gospel. But for Paul, nothing was off limits, including his own self-support. To, to summarize this first section of chapter 9, we'd say this. Paul is defending his apostolic status by appealing to his Christ-given credentials and by pointing out that his lack of support is not because he isn't legitimate or unworthy to be paid. It is an intentional choice that Paul made in order not to hinder the gospel. And this serves the overarching theme of chapters 8 through 10 by showing that, that he himself is a model of how to use knowledge and freedom and Christian liberty to serve Christ and his church and not for selfish reasons. So it, it all comes back to that, that big topic that he's addressing from 8 through 10. But do you see how it's, it's kind of layered? By the time we get down all the, the cascading branches, we get to these uh, nitty-gritty details about self-support. But it's still, it's still addressing that big issue. And he's saying, here's, here's my life. I'm going to put it on display. This, this is the lengths to which I am willing to go to in order to make sure I use my Christian freedom and liberty correctly. He's correcting how the raw believers, some of them, are using their freedom. So this theme of willing to do anything, to go anywhere, it's a theme of sacrifice and surrender. And Jesus is looking for disciples who are willing to sacrifice and surrender everything. Disciples who've made a decision and have resolved that nothing is off limits. There's nothing, there's no hat on the wall of my life that I'm not willing to give up. I want to pull in a passage from Mark 10. Um, the immediate context 
of what I'm about to read. Immediately before this is the account of the rich man who approaches Jesus and says, I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus confronts him and says, how about you go and sell everything first? And you remember the rich man walks away disappointed and sorrowful because um, he had, it says, many possessions and he's not willing to part from it. it that was his hat that was off limits, his, his wealth and his possessions. When we get to our section that I'm going to read in just a minute here, um, they're still discussing, Jesus is still going back and forth with, with his disciples, discussing the event of, of that man being unwilling to part from his possessions. And this is where we pick it up. Mark 10, 29 and 30. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter said that he and his disciples, uh, he and the other disciples had left everything. Everything. And notice what Jesus responds with. Jesus doesn't say, nobody asked you to do that, Peter. Uh, I think that's a little excessive. No. Instead, he affirms Peter's sacrifice and essentially says, you made the right call. And it has not gone unnoticed by me, Peter. Is there anything that is off limits in our life? What's that hat on the wall that we're unwilling to part with? Is there anything like that? Do we have a hat? Now, Jesus calls all of us to faith, but the specific call that he places on our life is going to be different for each one of us. I hope we understand that. Um, so, so before we go home and, and beat ourselves up for not selling everything and moving to the, the missionary front line where there's no electricity or running water, I think we need to balance this with the 1 Corinthians 7 teaching. You remember, that was the one where it says you've arrived at your destination. Remain as you are called, our station, our post, our, our circumstances in life. God has assigned that, and he, and he uses us where we are. So we need to understand, we're not all an Apostle Paul. We're not all called to, to hit the front lines and plant churches. We're not all Peter. We're not all called to be frontline missionaries in hostile regions. So, so what does this look like then? How do we apply this? Trying to keep it balanced. Well, here's the application challenge. First of all, if you're not in Christ, start there. If, if you're not in Christ, start there. Uh, here's the thing. You have not surrendered anything to God if you haven't first surrendered your life to Christ. You've not sacrificed anything for God if you have not first repented and believed in Jesus Christ. It is, it is impossible to, uh, as we quote our scripture passage, endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ if you've not responded to the gospel of Christ in repentance and belief. So I hope we understand that. Step one is, is responding to Jesus in faith. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end 
is the way of death. That teaches us that, that we in our own minds and our own hearts can think, no, I'm good. I think I'm fine where I'm at. I think everything will turn out okay in the end. Or, or, or I have an agreement with God and he knows my heart and, and it's okay that I'm not, you know, connected to his church and baptized and, and doing all that stuff that my friends do. That's a way that seems right to a man. But that's, that way, Scripture says, ends in death. There's only one way to God, and that's repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. So step one is turning to Jesus Christ, surrendering your life, understanding that you are bankrupt before God, understanding that there is no way, and anything that you can devise in your own heart is, is a way that leads to death. So turn to Christ. Accept the work that he has accomplished on your behalf. Accept his blood sacrifice. That is the only thing that will make you right from God. That is the only thing that will enable your sins to be forgiven. So step one, turn to Christ. But for those in Christ, it's important to examine our life and to ensure that there is nothing currently acting as an obstacle in the way of the gospel. In our particular calling, in our ter- particular personal Christian ministry, if there is, if, if, you, if you are aware of some hat on the wall, it's time to let it go. And, and I think it's also important to mind, keep in mind as, as believers, when we're called to sacrifice for Christ, we're not called to to, to give up and to sacrifice and surrender so that he will be pleased with us. No, 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 no. It is, we are in Christ and we are recognizing in our life the, the, the evidences of God's grace, of how he has taken us from spiritual darkness to the, to the kingdom of God, how he's, he's changed us from where we were to where we are now. And in response to the work that God has done in our life, we respond in worship and we respond by eliminating any obstacles and by surrendering our favorite habit. So let go of it. But maybe there isn't anything right now. Maybe after a sober examination of your life and you, you, you took a look at the mirror and you, you prayed on it and you said, you know what, no, I, I think to the best of my ability, as, as best as humanly possible, I'm living for Christ. I don't think there is anything that's acting acting as a hindrance or something I need to cut off or let go of. Praise God. But I think we also need to understand that, that God may call us to let go of something in the future that he's not calling us to let go now. With the, with the rich man that approached Jesus, you, you notice that that happened in a time and a place. He, it, it, at one point, Jesus confronted him and asked him to surrender, and he failed. I don't think he got a second chance. I don't think Jesus circled around and a couple years later came back and said, how about now? Now will you sell everything and follow me? I think that window closed. So we need to be prepared. Uh, as some of you know, I was a volunteer fireman for five years. During the time I served, at no point, at any time in the five years, did anyone in the department ever run into a burning building and, and save a child. That just didn't happen. 
but I was very confident that any one of them would have done it if, if called upon. Because they had made a firm decision in their heart, this is my duty, this is what I'm here for, and they trained for it all the time. They trained for it. They, they would go over educational things. They would go over equipment. They would, they would put on full gear and, and, and crawl through the smokehouse, which was just an old trailer with plywood on the windows that they filled with smoke so you couldn't see anything. They trained with the jaws of life. That's an experience if you've never done that. It's pretty exhilarating. So that when the moment came, they didn't hesitate if called upon to do that. If we want to respond faithfully during a difficult time of testing, we need to prepare now. We need to crawl through the smokehouse with full gear on. We need to steal our minds now and make a decision that we are willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of Christ. That we're willing to give up anything for the sake of the gospel. And so we won't hesitate in the moment. There was nothing off limits for Paul. And you know the end of the story, right? Paul was imprisoned and beheaded. There was nothing off limits. I want to close today and pray that we would surrender and be prepared to surrender anything to remove an obstacle that's in the way of the gospel of Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we see the Apostle Paul, uh, we're in awe in how obedient he was to your word and how obedient he was to your calling. Father, we ask that uh, in our life and, and in our calling, no matter where you've placed us, that we would make the decision right now, we would make a, a firm commitment never to hold anything back and never to declare anything off limits for you and for the sake of your gospel. Father, if there's anything in our life right now, we ask that you would reveal that to us and we ask that you would prepare us for whatever you have in store in the future. We want to be found faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.